Hello and welcome to Military History Plus, the series which examines the history of warfare in breadth and depth. I'm one of your co-hosts, I'm Dr Spence-Jones, and I'm joined, as ever, by my friend and co-host... That's Gary Sheffield. Hi, Spence. Hi, Gary. So why don't we tell the listeners to begin, why are we suddenly recording a new episode that is out of our usual schedule? Well, I've listened to some podcasts, political podcasts, and they have emergency uh, programs looking at a particular topical issue. And this, if, if you like, is the history equivalent of that, because... Anybody who has been reading the newspapers, watching television, going on social media recently will be aware that Ridley Scott's new film, Napoleon, is about to come out. In fact, I think it's being released into cinemas in the UK tomorrow or the day after. It's not the film itself particularly that I want to talk about. It's the controversy that's been generated by the director, Ridley Scott's views on historians and history. I mean, you must have picked up on some of this, Spence. I certainly have. So full disclosure, Gary, and listeners, I'm an absolute film nerd. I love films. Ridley Scott's made several of my favourite films, The uh, Alien, Blade Runner, and uh, Gladiator, to just name three of them. But I picked up on all this, and even though I'm very excited, I have to say, Gary, I'm very excited to see Napoleon on the big screen. I think it'd be a really exciting sort of cinema treat. But even I was a bit perturbed by the great man's comments in the news. So what was it particularly that Ridley said that's drawn your attention? OK, right. I, I will give a verbatim quote. I think this is an article, an interview he gave with the BBC. Uh, and I'm bleeping out one of the words. <laughs> uh, Ridley Scott has been uh, criticised because of historical inaccuracies in the film Napoleon. And he was asked about this and he said, I quote, like all history, it's been reported. Napoleon dies. Then 10 years later, someone writes a book. Then someone takes that book and writes another book. And so 400 years later, there's a lot of imagination in history books, in, in, in parentheses. When I have issues with historians, I say, excuse me, mate, were you there? No, we'll shut that F up then. So, um, well, he clearly has views on historians. Um, well, I, um, I, I must say, I first heard this and I was driving home somewhere the other day and listening to the news and a bolderized version of that appeared on, on, on the BBC News. And I, I was really you know, slightly annoyed, I think. I mean, I mean, pro professionally offended, I should say, being, uh, being a historian. And actually, I put a... a I put that quote, or, or a chunk of it anyway, on uh, 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 in a tweet on social media a few days ago. And uh, well, I'll read you what my tweet said. Uh, Ridley Scott's question to the critics who say the film isn't historically accurate is, were you there then? Oh, you weren't there. Then how do you know? And my reply to that is, uh, by careful research based on deep reading in voluminous archives. I, I, I mean, I, I don't want to sort of diss Ridley Scott anymore because I I like his films. In fact, uh, The Duelists, his earlier Napoleonic oh, film from the 70s, you. tremendous mm. movie. Um, mm. But actually, what he has said has brought up a very, very common uh, actually set of um, mistakes about how history works, what historians do, and I thought it'd be useful for us to sort of talk about this now, because actually the practice of history 
It's not something that many people know much about, possibly because it's not very interesting. But I think it's vitally important mm. to understand how historians, and you have two of, of, of them on this podcast, actually going about practicing their craft. I think that's a really, really good point. And I think this is particularly interesting. Uh, I'm not sure if you agree with me on this, but there's a, a sort of contrast in the world of history because on one hand, history is massively popular within the English-speaking world. You only have to turn on the TV, there's history documentaries, there's history movies, Napoleon. You go into any bookstore, there's a huge history section. So the public is very interested in history. And I think that can sometimes give the impression that there's a very, very low bar to entry into the world of being a professional historian. And that's in a way that you wouldn't necessarily see with science. Now, I know there's, there's popular science, for example, but you wouldn't necessarily get people walking around saying, I'm an amateur physicist. If there are any amateur physicists listening, no offense intended. But with history, I think there's an element of that, that because people can often be very, very well-read amateurs, they might read lots and lots of books, and then they think, oh, it's really easy to be a historian. All you do is you read books. But that's only part of it, isn't it, Gary? Yeah, I mean, we yeah. may start with books, but then lots more develops from that. And if there's one thing, and I'm not sure if you agree with me on this, but if there's one thing that does drive me a little bit mad, it's people massively underestimate how much work goes into preparing to write even a single page, let alone a book in what I'll call a, a really heavyweight history book. You, the amount of work and study and dare I say it's second guessing sometimes because if you're anything like me Gary you've got to make sure that all the I's are dotted all the T's are crossed your arguments are absolutely watertight the evidence is perfect because you're well I certainly always worry if I get a slight thing wrong here another historian's going to come along and he's going to make me look like an absolute fool so the, the amount of background work it's reminds me of the analogy of a duck that it looks very calm on the surface but underneath it's absolutely swimming furiously and that, for me there's a lot of that in preparing history. Well, I, I mean, I absolutely agree with that. And uh, there is a sense of intellectual honesty. When I'm writing something based on original sources, that if I, you know, occasionally I, I, I make an argument, I think that doesn't really stack up. It, You know, there are alternative interpretations and intellectual honesty drives me back to, to revisiting it. I might have a, a lovely argument, uh, you know, very, very well polished, but does it quite add up? No, not so sure. Um, well, um, I mean, two two things. First of all, and I'm I'm disclaiming this comment a because I didn't make it, and b I don't want to get flack for it. But I'm on a I I I'm on a, on a WhatsApp group with a people a group of people interested in military history, and we were discussing this over the weekend, and someone came up with the analogy of a you know amateur historian who's read a few things and you know thinks about history well if you put a plaster on a on a sort of you know a cut on your toe that makes you a doctor now that's a bit excessive but you see where the argument um, is going and the other thing is and i i will we we'll talk about this in more detail a bit later on um i've i'd actually not normally watch very much television actually uh beyond the news and match of the day and things like that but i've actually seen some documentaries recently which quite perturbed me because of the way that they used uh or i would say misused evidence one of them was the uh, uh the program about, about the the evidence for the surviving princes in the tower uh supposedly uh murdered by richard iii i think all the evidence is that 
they were probably murdered by Richard III. Another one was a, a, a three-part program uh, on the BBC about Shakespeare, the rise of a genius. I must admit, I've only watched two parts. Third part was on last night, but I was watching the England versus Northern Macedonia game instead. I probably <laughs> watch, should have watched the Shakespeare, having seen the quality of the football. <laughs> Both of those, I thought, were quite problematic with the way they dealt with evidence. Uh, and so it's not just a matter of academics banging on in, 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 in learned tomes, which nobody reads. This stuff is actually getting out into the popular media. And I think we need to have a discussion about it. Well, this is all very interesting, Gary. And one thing that it raises in my mind is a question. And this is about the different roles that different people working with history actually fulfill. And it strikes me that there's, there's, there has to be a different role between a filmmaker, a documentary maker, and people like us who are scholars of this and are, are trying to do something different. What do you think about this? What's the fundamental differences here when we're producing history? OK, well, I think the first thing to say is, and I, again, I, I, this is a, a, not an original thought. It's uh, something that was said to me by uh, a friend of mine in the pub on Sunday evening. So where all the best discussions about history take place, of course, is that Ridley Scott's Napoleon, in fact, any historical film is a form of historical fiction. Yeah, nobody expects it to be. 100% accurate. It's not footnoted or anything like that. The question is how closely to the historical truth, as far as we can ascertain it, uh, does a film or television program stick? Uh, and at one extreme, you can have uh, a, pro a film which is deliberately, you know, uh, very, very authentic. At the other extreme, you've got something like uh, Black Adder or Upstart Crow, uh, which actually I'm a fan of both of those programs. For those who don't know, maybe outside the UK, Blackadder is a series of parodies of, 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 of British history. Um, uh, and, and Upstart Crow, uh, written by the same author, actually, by, by Ben Elton, is a sort of, you know, parody of, of Shakespeare. Both of those actually are very, actually quite profound because they, they take liberties of history, but deliberately so. And, and you know that they're messing around with it, but they're making deeper points about, for example, um, the way Shakespeare uh, drew upon uh, everyday life to create to, 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 to create, create his place. Um, what I think is more problematic are television programs, um, films, which are not deliberate parodies, but actually they play really, really fast and loose with the truth. Now, I, only today, actually, in The Guardian, I was reading an article by Simon Jenkins, who I normally disagree with everything he writes, but actually on this occasion, I, I think he's, he, he's, he's onto something, uh, about the dangers, of, of, particularly of, of taking liberties with very modern history. And he take, uses the example of the crown. So mm. I think we're just about to start the sixth series. It's about the royal family since... Uh, uh, Queen Elizabeth II's uh, ascension, and point. And I, I should actually say I, I really don't have a have a dog in this fight in terms of you know I'm not fanatically pro monarchy or anti monarchy either like that. But I was actually quite perturbed because it's such a good series to watch an episode, and then I, I then googled it afterwards to find out actually what happened in reality was very different from the way it's presented on screen. For the obvious reason is that for every person who reads a properly researched and footnoted scholarly monograph, there are hundreds, thousands, possibly millions who will watch something like that. And what will they believe? 
possibly because they don't know that any any difference, they will believe what appear on on the screen. And so it has a really very very um, it's a very potent way of influencing views on history. And one level, does that matter? Possibly not. In some ways, well, yes, it does. Uh, I mean, Simon Jenkins this morning, for example puts forward the hypothetical idea of a Hollywood blockbuster, which basically takes uh, uh, its point of departure that Donald Trump was robbed of the 2020 presidential election. And if you know enough people seem to believe that anyway, and if you have a Hollywood blockbuster making that point of view, that is potentially very, very dangerous. So at one level, does it matter? Perhaps not. But in some ways it does. And I think it matters a great deal. I completely agree with this. And just to bring in a point that originally I think we we're going to discuss a little later in the podcast, but it's pertinent now. One thing to just bear in mind for listeners, if you're depending on how old you are, you might not consume that much YouTube and you might not consume that much TikTok. But just from my experience with my students, students now draw huge amount of their information from those two sources, those online sources. Now, YouTube is is a little bit um, like a candy shop. You never know quite what you're going to get when you go rootling in it. There's some genuinely excellent documentary makers on YouTube who make fascinating documentaries about all kinds of things. I have just two I might mention for history. Full disclosure, I, I have friends there, but real-time history with Jesse Alexander is one, a battle guide uh, TV with Dan Hill is another, where a lot of time and effort's put into making this correct. But there's also a lot of junk history on YouTube and TikTok, especially because TikTok's short form. So it works on a clickbait principles where you've got a very exciting headline. Um, just while we were recording this, I just typed in history ideas onto YouTube. And the very first thing that came up is a clickbait video. What if Britain fought the Vietnam War? Now, just looking at the thumbnail for this, I can tell you that this is not going to be a very well-considered or thought-out concept. And you get all kinds of things with this. If you want to scare yourself, type in German tanks into YouTube and you'll find just a wave of videos, many of which have got some quite unsavory ideas in them. And when you've got this, this whole wave of history that's coming from below in a way, and YouTube, there's no filled system at all. If we think that TV plays fast and loose the history, TikTok and YouTube plays even faster and looser. And that's why I think it's really important that, that there still has to be a professional standard somewhere within the world of history, because otherwise it's so easy. And there's positives to democratize history. Of course there is. But there's also a, a risk that in doing that, we lose all the core principles and values of history. And certainly one of the things I have, just going back to the original point, when undergraduates come in, not all undergraduates, but a noticeable number have got some very strange ideas about military history, which they've picked up on the internet. And part of the first year with them is often saying, well, actually, there's there's better ways to get your history. There's more ways to get your history. And the, the details are always richer. Well, I'm tempted to ask uh, TikTok, is that something on, upon which popular beat combos appear? Oh. Uh, <laughs> I, no, I, I do know what TikTok is, although I must say I've, I've, I've never actually used it. Uh, I mean, the internet, it's a completely unregulated space. You can get some brilliant stuff, history stuff on the internet. You can get some absolutely awful stuff as well. And so it needs a big health warning. Before we plunge into you know, what the historians actually do, we're, we're talking about our own experience of research, because rather than generalizing over much, we're talking about our specific experiences. Let me just say something about why I think these two programs I mentioned recently 
I think there are big question marks against them. Um, the first one is the the the, the princes in the tower uh, program, which actually I I watched um, and I found it very interesting because there is a there's a project going on which has uh, uncovered some you know some quite interesting new evidence from archives, particularly in continental Europe. Um, and, and my problem was not with that, but with the way it was interpreted and presented. And, and actually, there were there were several reputable academic historians appearing on the program, um, but they were not the ones who had the final say about, you know, was the thesis of the program that the princes were not murdered by Richard III, that they survived, they went on and, and re reappeared as, as pretenders. Uh, it was not the professional historians had the final say on that. It was actually a, um, a, a television personality, I think is a, a, a barrister in, in everyday life. I've only ever seen him on sort of chat shows and th things like that. Um, and the the problem was they came up with with one document. They clearly it was just being presented as a smoking gun, because it was uh, an account supposedly written by um, one of the princes explaining how he had escaped from the tower and reappeared on the continent. And here he was uh, trying to get the support of continental monarchs to invade England to take back. His, his birthright. And this was authenticated in the sense that it was said, yes, there, this is a late 15th century document. And uh, and only today, someone sort of questioned me on Twitter saying, well, look, they said that the, ex the experts said this document was authentic. And my reply was, no, that's not what they said. They actually said it was from that period, but they gave no indication about who actually wrote this thing. And if you think about it, if you're a pretender, uh, you're going to try and write a backstory. Well, okay, we thought you're dead. You've popped up at the um, at the, 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 the court of, a, of, a, of of Maximilian. How have you got here? Well, here's my backstory. This is how how I escaped. And of course, this was the fact that this 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 guy contacted me on Twitter about this today makes the point that well, they didn't say for certain. Yes, it you know absolutely is proof. They didn't underline. The real problems in taking this sort of evidence at face value. And I thought that's where the program fell down really, really badly. Because they weren't they weren't lying, but the impression they gave was that this that this evidence was a lot firmer than actually in reality it is. It's 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 it, you know, having read some of the experts on Twitter about this. They seem to think it was a, a late 15th century forgery for the very obvious reason that if you're a pretender, you've got to come up with a backstory. The second bit, uh, now, this is talking about the, the three-part Shakespeare series. I must say there's a much, much better uh, documentary on Sky Arts about Shakespeare's first folio, which uh, I, I, I found out, yes, they actually was offered to the BBC. The BBC turned it down. But anyway, this the other one's a lot better. Right. This is a, 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 a review of this BBC Shakespeare three-parter from, from a newspaper. Uh, and uh, it's got this wonderful line. It says, um, it talks about the, uh, uh, it says, uh, it's claimed that we know very little of the man, Shakespeare's biography, that he was poorly educated, and the plays provided the immediate keys to his life story and responses to the political and social upheavals of the day. Surely all these assumptions were highly questionable, which is exactly what I thought. And it's this wonderful line which comes from this review. 
they have cooked up an indigestible banquet of speculation and must have filtery, which mostly impose the emotional reactions of our own times on a world quite different from ours. Right. Do, do you know which uh, which which newspaper that came from, Spence? With that kind of language, I'm going to say it came from the Times. Well, you're nearly right. It was the Church Times. <laughs> right. I didn't even know there was a Church Times. Oh, so yeah, yeah. Well, Church Times. It's it's my uh, it's my my regular bedtime reading. No, it isn't. But actually, uh, um, it's uh, what you don't want to get on the on on the the bad side of a church church times reviewer and and their football coverage is out this world. <laughs> um, but it's a very very important point that what this this program did, uh, I thought, was present speculation, which actually can be quite informed speculation. So I'm not saying it's necessarily ridiculous, but they tended to to report to, to present it as fact and i thought that was really quite dangerous because actually we know remarkably little about shakespeare and so much of what passes for biographical information about about him is uh, is is guesswork sometimes built on a you know a, a reasonable um level of of not unreasonable supposition but it remains speculation nonetheless and this actually well the point which struck me immediately was both of us work primarily on the late 19th century and early 20th century, where we have a huge mass of evidence to draw upon. That is not the case for colleagues working in earlier periods. So if anything, we have the opposite problem. We have too much information we need to make sense of. But in earlier times, really, you're dealing with very, very slim pickings indeed. Just on that very short anecdote, and this is a little bit of a shout out to anybody who's working with medieval history out there who happens to be listening. One of my enduring memories was uh, early in my career, and I was I was grousing. Uh, this is going to date me terribly. I was grousing about how much photocopying I'd had to do in an archive. So this is sort of pre-digital <laughs> photography being widespread. And I said, oh, God, you know, I've this folder weighs a ton. I've got, it cost me a fortune to photocopy all this. And uh, a colleague at the time um, who's works medieval history rolled his eyes and said how lovely it must be to have so many sources well, <laughs> that made a point quite well you're absolutely right okay having uh <laughs> got that out of the way uh let's now talk about how historians work uh and how we use evidence well let's start with with, with Ridley, Ridley Scott's idea that really you couldn't possibly know what happened in history unless you uh, happened to be there. Well, I can think of a number of, of uh, uh, reposts to that, but uh, what's your an initial thought about, about that idea? I think it's superficially very tempting to just say that. And I'll, I'll be the first to say that, hand on heart, there are parts of history, surprisingly large parts of history, where we actually don't fully know what happened because the people who were there didn't tell us what happened. We have to use a little bit of instinct to fill in. But that's, for me, where the historian's art is. And I remember very, very early on in my, my history career, it may have been Paddy Griffith, who, of course, is a great friend of this show, uh, we often reference him, said something like that the, the great art of history is it's part research and part, part, part research, part Sherlock Holmes. He said that a good historian is half Watson and half Holmes, in fact. And I think there's something in that. So we may not know exactly what happened 
because we don't have an exact record of, say, a meeting, for example. I'm just thinking of one off the top of my head now, which happens in 1914 in September. Commander-in-Chief of the BF, John French, he meets Lord Kitchener in Paris. And we don't know what was said at that meeting. We know the outcome of that meeting, and we've got John French's reminiscences of it five, written five years later. But we don't fully know what was said. But what we can do is we can start to draw up a picture of what was probably said, because we know what had led into this meeting. So the background, just to expand for the listeners, it's the German invasion of France in 1914. Everything is going horribly wrong for the Allies. The British and the French are being thrown back. They've retreated some 200 miles towards Paris. And John French, commander of the British Army, he's had enough. He actually sends a telegram to London and he says, I am pulling the army out of the line. The French are useless. Nobody's helping me. We've taken heavy losses and we're going. And Prime Minister Herbert Asquith gets this telegram, is pretty horrified, and he sends Lord Kitchener, who's the Secretary of State for War, out to Paris with the instruction, put the fear of God into them all. So immediately we've got uh, some ideas about what this meeting is going to be like. Kitchener's been told to put the fear of God into everybody. We know from previous materials that Kitchener is a pretty intimidating man. When he loses his temper, he loses his temper. He's going to go and meet John French, who was also a fiery man, and he's going to convince him you can't pull the army out of the line. They meet in Paris behind closed doors. We don't know what was said there, but we do know the outcome is the army stays with the French. The British army doesn't pull out and it fights in the Battle of the Marne a few days later. So we've got a series of a piece of evidence that can tell us, well, what's that meeting going to be like? What's going to happen? So we know the context of the meeting. We know something about the people who are in the meeting. We know it's a very high stakes meeting in the middle of a very grueling and hard fought campaign. So if you're listening, I, I absolutely guarantee you've probably got a picture in your mind. This is not going to be a meeting where there's lots of coffee and there's biscuits and they ask each other about their families. This is going to be real yes, hands being slammed on tables with two very fiery soldiers of the British Empire are going to give each other very, very frank opinions. So even though we're not there, even though it's just those two men in the room and only one of them left an account, and that was years later, we can get an impression about what was there. And that's just one example out of a galaxy of examples. I think the next question is, well, well, how do we actually get to that point to understand it? How do we know all this detail? And that's, for me, where the historian art really comes in. Because even if you can't find an exact account of something, you can start to build up a picture around it. You can act like a detective. And on that bombshell, we'll take a break, and then we'll come back about and talk about historians acting as detectives. So see you in a few minutes. Well, welcome back to Military History Plus special report on how to use history. And before we took a break, we were talking about the historian as detective. And and Spencer, you had this, this wonderful analogy uh, taken from, from Paddy Griffith of a historian being part Sherlock Holmes and part Dr. Watson. Uh, how far can you push this idea? Well, I actually think you can push it quite far because on one hand, you do have the Watson elements. So practical, detail-oriented, it's, it's straightforward, if we will, the the, the sort of everyman's approach, the um, the looking at the, the broader picture. and But then eventually there's going to be gaps in what you could look at. And just like in a good Holmes and Watson story, Watson can only take the case so far, then you need Sherlock Holmes to come in and make these leaps, which 
are actually always logical. I mean, that's the joy of a good Sherlock Holmes story. The best Sherlock Holmes story is Holmes's leaps are, are logical and, of course, it's explained at the end. And that's the historian's art as well. You, you marshal what evidence you have available, but unless it's an extraordinarily well-covered aspect of history, there's going to be gaps in that evidence. And the further you go back, the bigger the gaps are. And that's where you need to start filling in with wider reading, your own instincts, sometimes you may have to make a, an educated guess and put together this jigsaw puzzle. Well, that's where Ridley Scott is not entirely wrong. I mean, there are, there, there is imagination, speculation, if you like, which goes to, to fill up the, uh, the, the bigger picture. Yeah, to fill in the gaps, the, the evidence, the evidential base simply does, doesn't give us. Ironically, Ridley Scott is not entirely wrong about historians using imagination, speculation, if you like, to fill in the gaps which simply aren't covered by the documentary evidence. Um, but Napoleon is one of the better documented figures in history. So when he was writing through his film on Gladiator, for example, yeah, of course, there are huge gaps in the historical record. But for the Napoleonic Wars, and for Napoleon himself, there's an awful lot of evidence. And so there's much less need to rely on speculation and uh, and imagination. It's also worth saying, of course, that um, well, we mentioned in the um, first of our podcasts of this series that John Terrain was criticised for writing in the way he did about the First World War in the 1960s. Oh, you weren't there. How could you possibly have known? Well, yeah, if you take that argument to its logical conclusion, nobody could write any history at all that goes beyond living memory, which, you know, shuts down the profession of history. That that's a, leads on to an interesting point, I think, Gary, that I, I'd like your thoughts on. And this is, you've mentioned profession of military history, important phrase, profession there. And this is something that crops up, I think, in discussion quite a lot. It goes back to a point I was making earlier about popular history is very, it's extremely popular. It's probably more popular than it's ever been in some ways. And is there a, a gateway? Is there a, a threshold to becoming a historian? And we've mentioned John Terrain, and by broadest definitions, he would be classed nowadays, I think, as an amateur historian. And yet, of course, he's hugely influential. And so, I wonder, Gary, what, what, how would you define the difference between an amateur historian and a professional historian? Is the one, and is it important? Okay. Well, I've I've gone on record in the past by using slightly different terms, but it amounts the same thing. The difference for me is not between uh, a professional historian and a popular historian, but between good history and bad history. Because John Terrain was not a professional in the sense, well, he, he was professional in the sense he, he, he relied on his pen to make a living, but not in the expert sense professional. Uh, he he was not he was not historically trained. I mean, he did a history degree, two year degree during wartime. Didn't have a PhD or anything like that. But he had a great deal of I think innate historical sense, and I think as he went on, he developed and improved as a historian. He he became more shrill in some ways, so more defensive, uh, more inclined to you know quite occasion you know quite quite scathing attacks on his opponents but for example he used a broader range of sources 
he provided uh, footnotes in a way he really didn't in, in his earlier books. So actually, I think he improved in all sorts of ways. Now, if you want to get into an argument on Twitter, you can post something like, you need to have a PhD to be, to be a historian, and then you duck down out of sight as all the incoming fire comes in. And, and I've seen these sorts of silly arguments go on. Well, actually, that, that, that's daft. You clearly don't need a higher degree to write history, to write good history. I mean, there are plenty of people out there who are doing just that. All I would say is that no matter how talented you are as an amateur historian, in my experience, and you know, I've had a very similar experience to you in that I've taught a lot of people, mature students on master's degrees, sometimes on PhDs, who come in with a huge amount of interest and enthusiasm and knowledge, what they lack very often are the skills to carry out proper research and skills to present that research in an interpretive fashion in a way that matches up to, to scholarly standards. And what we do is, is give them those skills. Well, we, we train them in those skills. And so that's all that amounts to. I mean, a number of people, I mean, particularly people, I won't name names, but uh, uh, are Battlefield Tour guides, sometimes run Battlefield Tour companies, who have come on our courses and have told me, told you too, I guess, that it's been life-changing because they now have skills which they didn't have, and they're much better historians, therefore much better at their job. Put it this way. If, you need, if, if, you, if your house needs rewiring, you can hire a professional properly qualified electrician or you can get a mate in who knows a bit about electricity which one are you going to choose <laughs> it's like that with history it's a good analogy and i just echoed this comment that there's sometimes i think and i've met one or two people like this who perhaps have bad experiences um it's setting foot into the world of academic military history, which is, yeah, is, is very sad, but uh, they've developed a very negative view of academics. And um, academics are a broad church like any other. And there's a few bad apples in there. There's a few difficult people. But I think your comment about it's coming and doing a professional course, whether it's a master's, undergraduate, or, or even beyond PhD, gives you some additional skills is really important. It's a little bit like if you're a talented sportsman whatever sport you happen to play or sportswoman for that matter. And you then go and you have some professional coaching on top of it. You've, you may already have ability and interest, but having some professional coaching on top of that will hone your, your style, hone your game, give you additional skills that you can then take out. And that's true. I think with the way we approach history, we can't necessarily give you a love of history when you come on the course. We hope you've already got one, but we can, as you said, Gary show, and we try indeed strive to, this is, other ways of doing it, other approaches to doing it. And I think that leads me into a question I'd like to ask you, Gary. What, what do you think, or sorry, let me rephrase that. How do you approach yourself, leaving aside sort of um, teaching this, how do you approach a history project? What are your, I don't know, key steps when you begin a new project? Okay, well, let me give you a practical example. I'm working at the moment on the... 1914 campaign in France, specifically the, the, the Mons campaign as far as the Marne. And I'm comparing that with the 1940 campaign, the retreat from Dunkirk. So in, in broad terms, it's the retreat from Mons compared to the retreat from Dunkirk. Now, this is part of this much bigger project I'm doing, 
uh, comparing experience of British and Dominion soldiers in the two world wars. But this is something I've been working on quite recently, so this is very fresh in my mind. The first thing I do is sit and read the key secondary sources, by which I mean, what are the important books written by historians in the field, which have had an influence, which, which put forward ideas, which create a narrative. Now, these can be uh, quite elderly books. So, for example, I've been reading Edmund's Official History. Uh, partly, you know, I, I, we, we, we've discussed him in other, other podcasts recently, uh, but, you know, a very, very important historian in setting the agenda for the understanding of the British Army in the First World War. But I've also been reading much more recent material, including some of yours, Spence. Um, I've been reading David French's book, Raising Churchill's Army, about the British Army in the Second World War, which has got a very good chapter covering the Foley War and the France 1940 period. Okay, once I've read these books, added to the obviously the, the knowledge I already had, I start to get an idea of what the existing arguments are, uh, the, the schools of thought, and that gives me a context in which I can then start going in to look at the, the primary sources. And in this case, because I'm looking very much at the experience of the ordinary soldier, I've been looking uh, primarily at letters and diaries and memoirs. Always bear in mind, of course, that memoirs are primary sources, but there's a bit of a question mark around them, because if you're writing something 20 or 30 or 50 years after the event, your memory probably isn't going to be as sharp as it should be uh, for details. You may have reshaped events in your own head because of stuff you've read about Dunkirk or Mons or what have you since. Um, but that by reading into primary sources, that then allowed me to start to construct my argument, which I then need to put along, put into the context of what's already uh, been written, and then allowed me to come up hopefully with a, a fresh interpretation, uh, which makes intellectual sense, and I and I hope is um, is academically rigorous. So I mean, my interpretation really is just to look at the the the, the two experiences, put them side by side. And the big takeaway uh, for me, this isn't exactly you know, rocket science, but unless I don't think anybody's framed it in quite this way, is the major or what a major difference between the experience of retreating in 1914 and experience of retreating in 1940 over much the same ground in some places is air power. Mm. So I was in fact, only last week I was writing about the the battle of the of the, the second Royal Munster Fusiliers at Etreux, famous rearguard action, and it occurred to me when they're holed up in the in the orchard at Etreux with whoever it is nine German battalions descending upon them, if you throw a few Junkers 87 Stukas dive bombing at the same time, that's going to be an even more horrendous experience than it actually was. And so, yeah, so that's one of my takeaways from my research is that actually, if you put in a, a factor which historically was not available in 1914, what difference would it, would it have made? I then actually thought it slightly more broadly. Well, OK, we don't even know to throw in Stukas. Just imagine this takes place four years later in 1918, where there is pretty well developed tactical air power. Again, that would have made the experience of retreating troops all the more difficult. We know that because we've got examples of that happening 
in March and April 1918. So that's just, just, just an example of, of, of the way I go about it. So first of all, to take uh, secondary sources to provide the context and then examine the primary sources to interrogate them, to interpret them and come up with a narrative uh, mixed in with analysis, which to me makes intellectual sense. Once I finish this, I will then run it past the likes of Dr. Spencer Jones <laughs> and other colleagues to peer review it. So peer review before the book is even finished. Does this make sense? Have I got hold of the wrong end of the stick? Are there any interpretations that you would differ on? Are there any sources I haven't actually looked at? So very, very basically, that is how over a period of what, you know, more than 35 years, like nearly 40 years now of academic research, I have come to uh, approach writing history. And I should say, this is pretty well what I was taught to do <laughs> as a postgraduate at the University of Leeds for my master's and at the King's College London for my PhD. So this is not particularly radical or new. It's just the way I was taught to do it. Okay, I've come up with my own different wrinkles. And of course, technology has improved dramatically over the years. So use of internet sources of something that didn't even exist in the early 1980s. But I imagine that's pretty standard for the way that most historians work. I mean, is that how you work, more or less? Yeah, yes, it is. It's a, it's a standard approach. And it's a standard approach because it works. It really does work. It's surveying the secondary literature, absolutely essential. One of the first things I do with any student who's starting a research project, whether it's an undergraduate, MA, or even a PhD, is read everything you can find about what's been written. Start with the earliest publications you can find and bring yourself up to modern publications. Because one thing that is, I don't think is widely recognised is the extent to which ideas in literature just get repeated over and over and over oh, yeah, and over yeah, yeah. again. And so start with the earliest volumes you can. It's, and it always surprises students who are starting this how often the same ideas get repeated, but the original source has been lost. And that's one of the criticisms, which is actually a valid criticism, that some uh, amateur historians come up with, that historians just repeat themselves time and time again. To which my answer is, well, actually, good historians don't. But sadly, not all historians in that sense are good historians. That's true. And just to amplify that, so a lot of ideas, or not a lot, that's perhaps too strong. Ideas can sometimes just be repeated and repeated until they become just sort of standard, standard fact. And... That's why it's important to go back and go, where did those ideas begin? You find the earliest literature. And then you go back another step and you try and find what we call primary documents, documents produced at the time, letters, diaries, official publications, memoranda, anything you can think of. And you say, well, what was actually said at the time? It's amazing to me how often quotes get misremembered and reproduced badly in secondary literature. They're often shorn of context. They get shrunk down to ever pithier comments. So they're, they're devoid of meaning. And when you go back and you look at the primary sources and you go, well, actually, wow, I've seen that. I've seen part of that quote many times. I've never seen the full context. How interesting. That changes everything. And so looking at that and trying to build a picture of, and one thing I'd say, and we're talking, because this is a military history podcast and we mainly work with the First and Second World Wars, one thing to bear in mind that perhaps isn't quite so, if, you, if you've never done this, might not be quite so obvious, is you're dealing with a mass of material that is produced at the time without any thought to historians of the future. These are reports and letters that people are doing because they're alive. They're diary entries that people are writing because that's just what they do. They're having to keep a diary at the time. They're not always being written for a readership. And so this is where you have to take these little bits of evidence and you start piecing them together. 
Well, that, 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 that's spot on. And I'd immediately caveat it by saying, of course, some diaries are written for posterity. So, for example, I uh, I edited Haig's diary along with my, my colleague, John Bourne. And it's pretty clear he wasn't writing simply to remind himself of what had happened. Although there is an element of that. He is actually writing to influence his superiors up to and including the king. But that's fairly rare. So if you're reading the diary of Lance Corporal Smudger Smith in the Dunkirk campaign in 1940, he's very unlikely to be writing for, for, for posterity, which, which is why when you look at primary sources, um, you know, to, to paraphrase Orwell, you know, um, <laughs> all primary sources are equal, but some are more equal than others. Because, <laughs> well, as I've already mentioned, with the best will in the world, if you're, if you're reading a memoir which is written 50 years after the event, or 70 years, and don't forget that many of these memoirs are not written to be published. They're simply written by someone who wants to put down their experience in their old age, so for their grandchildren to read or something like that. I remember talking to someone at the Imperial War Museum who was saying that um, in the 1960s, you got a rash of First World War memoirs because First World War veterans had retired. They had times on their hands. You know, their, 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 their grandkids were saying, you know, granddad, what are you doing in the First World War? So they sat down and wrote, and wrote this stuff. In a similar way, you get, you know, I guess in the 1980s, uh, uh, Second World War veterans writing the same things. And they may well be influenced by the programs that they have watched on the war that they, they, they took, took part in. And so you've got, to, you've got to take some of the things they say with a pinch of salt. And so I'm very careful when I go through um, Second World War memoirs to differentiate between those that are clearly based on wartime diaries and letters and those which are, are written from memory. Not to say you rule out the ones written from memory, but they're probably not going to be as accurate. That's a really interesting comment about how um, living through history beyond the, the time when you participated in, in a war can influence it. And that's something I'd love us to return to in a future podcast episode. I think I'd, I'd love us to actually tackle the Great War as a documentary, for example, and how they, uh, the, the image of war changed and that influences memoirs. But you've just highlighted something that's really important, and that is that history is full of pitfalls. Going back to that Holmes and Watson analogy, there's also a lot of red herrings in history. And if there's one thing I'd say, just on a personal um, point, that I, how I've changed as a historian. When I was first starting out, I remember coming across a document in the National Archives. And for listeners who are really interested in the deep memoranda of the British Army Council before the First World War, this may thrill you. Everybody else, well, this is what was exciting me at the time. But I, the, uh, the British Army Council, which discussed various army matters, met regularly before the First World War. I found a, a, a long document in the British Army Council papers, when I was doing my PhD research, that seemed like an absolute smoking gun for what I was researching at the time. And I remember I was so excited when I found it, I wanted to phone people and say, oh, I found this document, it's gonna change everything. It's, it's absolutely mind blowing. And I think when you're a younger historian, it's easy to do that. You, you find one document, you think that's it, it's everything's changed. It's incredibly rare to find those kind of documents because it's just one voice in, in a mass of voices. And I have to say, I then absorbed this, I studied this a bit further and, and you know, my excitement levels sort of fell. And, and one thing I think I would say that is a difference between professionals and perhaps people who are um, you know, just researching this as a hobby or as an amateur is 
we as professionals, I think we're intrinsically a little bit more suspicious of smoking gun evidence. Yes. Uh, whereas amateurs tend to get a bit overexcited by it. I, I think that's absolutely right. And a healthy dose of skepticism is really important. So if you do, sometimes people do genuinely come up with a new piece of evidence which people haven't uh have, haven't used before or maybe they haven't realized the significance of it that's the point at which you need to peer review it you need to push it around your your colleagues have i got this right am i overcooking this because you can end up looking re really silly if you build an entire case on a document which proves to be i mean the worst case of forgery or you've misunderstood it or you know there, there are various cases which i would not go into quite high profile cases recently which people fundamentally misunderstood the documents that they, they were put in front, front of it. I'm not going to go into any great detail about this but there are some very high profile cases recently of historians misunderstanding documents they have discovered and that's actually one of the things that gets hammered into you in what the Americans would call grad school. We don't have quite the same thing here but uh, uh, you know, when uh, Professor Edward Spears or Professor Brian Bond were, were supervising my, master, my master's dissertation, my PhD dissertation, uh, they were, you know, good for the soul to sort of get comments back from them saying, well, Gary, I think, you know, you need to rethink that bit of evidence or yeah, are you sure? Or a big question mark in the margin. Uh, and that's, of course, what, uh, what I guess what we do as, uh, as, as supervisors today. Just a point that just, just, just struck me. I, 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 I've got a lot of sympathy, actually, for amateur historians who have ventured into the uh, what can be a bit of a snake pit of, of, of history, only to find their ideas rubbished by professional historians. I should actually say uh, my experience of military historians has, is, isn't usually like that, or at least it wasn't when I was a, a younger scholar. There are always a few people, but most people were pretty kind and... Um, and supportive. But if you do, um, as a professional historian, get given a piece of writing by an amateur, I think it's very good advice to be kind and and tactful with the way you deal with it. So they might go completely off beam or misread a document. But my approach has always has always been, well, uh, that's an interesting idea, but don't you think there might be an alternative interpretation as opposed to that's complete nonsense? You don't know what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, 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 I'm, I'm sure there are some people who have got their fingers very badly burned as a, mm -hmm. as a result of being being brusquely treated by um, by, by scholars. Mm -hmm. Just two points on that. One is. I completely agree about that. Um, as as a peer reviewer for various academic journals, sometimes you get a, a an anonymous article submitted to you to review, and it's quite obviously been written by an amateur. There's certain little ticks and tells we can have. Doesn't mean it's a bad article, but I remember piece of advice. I can't remember who ever gave who gave it me, but he said whenever you're doing peer review, if you want to criticise something, always suggest how it can be done better as well. Don't Indeed. just say this is yes. wrong, this is stupid. Say well. As you say, Gary, have you thought about this? Or maybe if you said it this way, it makes all the difference in the world. One thing that just struck me as we were talking about this and amateur traditions, um, again, there's actually a book here, like The Amateur Military Tradition by Ian Beckett, which I've just echoed in my mind. And I, We may not be able to answer this, but is military history unusually well served by amateur historians? I don't know if other branches of history 
you know, com commerce history or um, medieval history or any other branch of history you can think of has quite such a, a strong tradition of amateurs writing in it. And if we just think about some of the people we've discussed on this podcast series, John Terrain, an element of amateur, Martin Middlebrook's first day of the Somme, massively influential. And he was a chicken farmer who became a historian in that sense. So can you think of, of a comparative field of history that has quite such an, an amateur tradition? Uh the short answer is no, I can't. Um, thinking about Richard III, a lot of Ricardians are amateurs in the sense they don't have professional history jobs. But that's, I, I, that's a sort of like a subset of medieval history. Uh, no, and uh, I, I, I think that the reasons why there are so many amateurs working in military history are, are, are for very good reasons, that uh, military history, at least for Britain in the 20th century, has affected almost every family because Britain went through two world wars. So almost everybody has have a, a grandfather or a great uncle or something who, who went through those wars. A lot of material has survived, whether it be family letters or diaries, or even sometimes folk memories. I, I saw my, my elderly mum at the weekend and she was uh, telling me some stories about things which happened to her during the war. And, you know, passed on to me, I will pass it on to my children, probably my grandson when he's old enough to be to be bored by me. And, and so there's all of these sorts of continuities in history, which is not surprising that uh, people are very, very keen on military history. And of course, military history is just, just fascinating so many people because it's such a dark part of the human experience, but just such a, just a fascinating part. So I'm not surprised that we get so many amateur military historians. And I should actually say, you know, we, I, I don't want people to run away with the idea that either of us are opposed to amateur history. Far from it. It has hugely enriched what we do. All I'll say is that actually amateur historians, when they come to publish material, almost all of them, their work would be improved if they adhere to some basic scholarly standards, which is just really just learning some tricks of the trade. Uh, you know, it's no nothing magical about it, or anything like that. And uh, and most, I think everybody, thinking back to how I was having finished a, a history degree at the age of twenty one, launching into postgraduate research, uh, I learned an enormous amount about how to be a historian while actually doing it. I mean, th there might be some people who are born natural historians, but for most of us, you learn how to do it um, as you go along. I completely agree. Uh, just again, from our joint teaching experience, I say this to the, particularly the MA students on the history of the First World War MA at the University of Wolverhampton, when you always keep your essays, because um, when you start your writing essays, you, you may think uh, you, you're quite good at writing essays. You may get good marks for them. But by the time you finish the course, the last essay you submit, compare it to your first essay and you'll be stunned at how different it is. And yeah. I would say the overwhelming comment we get when the, the MA has been completed is, I wish I knew as much as I did at the end of the MA. As it, or I wish I had the knowledge I've got at the end, end of the MA. When I started, my essays would have been a lot better. Uh, well, I always say, well, that just shows you've made progress. Yeah, and and yeah. that's where I think 
um, academic education has such a great role to play for, for making you appreciate history more, write history in a better way, and just get a lot more out of it. And so uh, this may sound like a bit of a manifesto for the importance of university history, but it really does. Um, it can it enhances and adds shine to, to the subject. And uh, long may it continue. A sceptic might, might say this has been one thinly veiled plug for, <laughs> for, 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 for his, his history education. Okay, I guess we ought to start to to wind up uh, now, but um, I think I think it might be quite fun to talk about some of our experiences of working in archives because getting your hands dirty, sometimes literally dirty, uh, handling documents is one of the great privileges of being a historian. What were the first scholarly documents that you ever physically handled in That's, an archive? In I can remember my ones, but I'll, I'll allow you to start. The first I ever physically handled an archive? That's a really good question. Um, I remember first coming across Winston, some Winston Churchill papers. Um, they weren't the first I handled, but they were the first I had a really strong reaction to. I was looking at Winston Churchill and the Boer War of course, heavily involved, especially in the early part of the Boer War. And I was looking at his correspondence from South Africa. And to look at that and actually see Winston Churchill's handwriting, see the famous WSC signature and so on. I remember as younger and just starting my journey, really, with, with serious archival work, I was blown away. I just thought, my God, yeah. this is one of those famous people of the 20th century. And he's writing this. Uh, another, just a, to add to that, I remember when I moved into looking at, at a material relating to the Boer War, actual military material, so military documents. And there was a document that had been produced. It was actually an intelligence report. And somebody had obviously put a cup of tea or coffee onto it, probably at the time, I imagine. You know, it's on some camp table and someone's just slapped a cup of coffee or tea onto it. And there was a tea stain ring. And I remember the it must have been done at the time because the author, it was a, a series of, it was a handwritten report. He'd gone around the ring He'd actually avoided writing through it. And I just, it conjured up this wonderful <laughs> image in my mind of there's a harassed adjutant and he's writing this report and some bozo, perhaps even he's done it himself, has accidentally stained his document and he's, he's carefully gone around this. And I thought, how incredibly human, even though this document separated from a century. And I remember getting such a strong reaction to that. Well, so about I, you? It, could, could you remember a few? Well, but before that, I'll just, I'll just sort, of, you know, uh, uh, sort of respond to that story because I was sent... Uh, a colleague in South Africa sent me a really interesting document uh, about the Tobruk inquiry. So the inquiry about the, the fall of Tobruk in 1942. And at some point over the previous 70 years, someone has spilt an entire bottle of ink over it. Oh. And so there's this huge, great <laughs> ink stain. <Yeah. laughs> I mean, it's quite difficult to read in places. Anyway, but you know. uh, no, I, I can remember very, very vividly uh, my first use of an archive which would have been in 1981 as an undergraduate researching my undergraduate dissertation at the University of Leeds. And I was in Kensington Public Library. I was beginning my research on the 22nd Royal Fusiliers, brackets, Kensington, Kitchener Battalion raised in 1914. And there were these documents concerning the raising battalion. And I just sat there. You know, I was what, 20, 21. And suddenly these documents were placed in front of me. Uh, written in 1914, signed by the mayor of Kensington, by the commander of the uh, battalion. There were some letters 
written by a, a soldier who fought there. And I thought, wow, this is real history. You know, I this is not reading books about it. This is touching. This is feeling this material. And that sense of awe has never left me. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't feel it quite as strongly now as I did. But when I stop and think when I'm in an archive, what am I doing here? This is history. Uh, right. OK. Um, what's the most eccentric archive you've ever worked in? <laughs> well, I've worked in a few of those. I may have to change a few names to protect the innocence <laughs> on this. To, to protect so, the guilty. <laughs> to the guilty. So if I am going to have to change a name, but uh, if you really want to know what it is and you run into me, buy me a drink and I'll tell you. I worked in a very strange archive in the north of England, and it was actually associated with an institution, but the, the archive itself was, was um, a sort of offshoot of um of a wider archive here and basically there was one man who who sort of ran this archive and it, it was partly a passion project i think um and a little bit of a clue to do with the ball war and so i went up there to have a look at it and it was a, a, a really odd archive it was a, a real grab bag of um british army material that had been produced during the war a little bit unsystematically organized but the archive itself um I don't know where it was all stored, but the room, the reading room, such as it was, was tiny. Um, I reckon it could have, it got seating for maybe four people. And that would have been, your elbows would have been touching. I was the only person there. This is in the days before digital archive, uh, digital photography was widely allowed in archives. So it was pencils and uh, your notepads at the ready. I didn't even own a laptop at the time. And I, so I went to this archive, made arrangements, turned up, some materials presented for me. And the archivist, then wasn't at a desk or anything. He came and he sat next to me at the table. And he just looked over my shoulder during the entire time I was working in this archive. And I was going to, it was so off-putting because he wasn't doing anything. He was just looking at what I was doing. And you know, you it's difficult <laughs> to sort of do anything when there's somebody over your shoulder. So I was there and I'd, I'd go through documents and I'd skim them. And sometimes there wasn't anything particularly interesting, or, or I didn't want to make any notes on this document, so I put it to one side. And I did this with a, maybe three or four documents. And this archivist then suddenly said, we didn't make any notes on that document, did you? You think, well, well no, it wasn't actually that relevant. And he sort of would do this. Huh. And I've never, the, the disapproval <laughs> in this archive was absolutely overwhelming. I, it was the strangest experience. And um, so the material itself was a bit mixed. Very, very odd. And then last anecdote on this, um, from one extreme to another. Going back, um, way back into to, to when I was doing my PhD research, I needed to go to the guards archives. Um, quite good. I, I wanted to look at their, their war records. They actually got some quite good stuff there. So I made these. Those were the days. This is the mid north, mid to late noughties. Uh, the guards archive. You couldn't contact them online. You had to make a telephone appointment. That's the kind of place it was. And at the time, my West Midlands accent was a lot stronger. So. Um, it did that and it's always stronger over telephone too so i made a telephone appointment and I, I to this day i don't know what i did to upset the the chap on the other end of the telephone but he would i could immediately sense the hostility down the telephone as i was trying <laughs> to book this and i remember saying you know oh i'm, I'm a researcher doing phd research etc explain what i wanted i'd like to book an appointment and he you know harumped and hummed and said oh where are you from oh through university of wolverhampton hmm and then he he booked me in and he said, as he finished booking me in, he said, so where were you from again? I'm from the University of Wolverhampton. He said, oh, right, shine your shoes before you come. 
Punga Pumpy. Wow. <laughs> you know, never let it be said that certain stereotypes aren't in, always accurate. And uh, uh, I, I can tell you, uh, dear listeners, I did shine my shoes before I went and, and I got in. It was quite useful. But there you and, go. Two strange and, archival experiences. And did you did you leave your whippet tied up outside the archive? <laughs> yeah. And a pint of bitter on the uh, on the side as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I've... I, uh, numerous stories i i i could tell but i i'll limit myself just 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 to a couple um not eccentric exactly but sudden uh, a very very um unusual place to work is the royal archives have you ever worked there Wind windsor castle do you know i've never actually been uh, in the royal archives i've never yeah. never well, I, well I, I worked in, uh, in in the royal archives twice i think three times and um first thing is uh they there isn't um a catalogue you have to ask do you have anything on and they will go away and bring it to you in fact i think there might be a catalogue now but when i was using it at the time uh there, 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 there wasn't so i found that a bit odd but but um very nice but slightly um unusual ritual is that i think it was 11 o'clock a little bell rang and everybody went down and had coffee and cake and you end up sort of making polite conversation with these titled ladies who uh obviously uh, uh, do things around this it's, it's in the round 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 tower at windsor castle and i remember talking to this i think it's a canadian historian who was only over britain for for a limited time and he was quite frustrated he had to spend you know, whatever it was half an hour making polite conversation but he really wanted to get his nose back in back in the archives um the other one um and this is a story which I've uh, I've discussed this with many people who've had a similar experience. If you go to the Canadian National Archives in Ottawa, uh, which is a wonderful collection, uh, but their professional archivists go off duty at something like three o'clock in the afternoon. And if you then sort of finish your document at 10 past three, as I did on my first day there, you can't actually order anything until the following day, which is a bit of a pain. Um, but the other thing is that they have these uniformed guards, which I, I think must, or curate, no, they're not curators, you know, janitors, I about to say, I, I, I guess must be ex-military. And they wander around, and for whatever reason, they have a real downer if you have the document boxes on your desk with the lid open and they'll come and very ostentatiously flip the lid shut and um, i was talking about this to a, a canadian colleague afterwards he said oh yeah you know don't, don't you know uh, in, in ottawa dust is notorious for leaping off the table onto the documents <laughs> anyway I, I suspect you know every every archive has a story um uh, shout out to what's now the national archives i still call the public record office because i'm ancient um it was a really awful archive to work in when I first went there in, in the 80s. Very clunky, uh, difficult to get material and all the rest of it. And now it's one of the best archives I've worked in. Uh, sadly, there's some other archives I could mention across the globe that have gone the other way. But mm. National mm. Archives at Kew, superb archive, wonderful service. Mm. I think perhaps re revisiting an archive, how it works, how we work in that is, is a good topic for another podcast. And as you allude, sadly, not every archive is, is created equal. Um, I'd just like to end our little voyage into anecdotes about archives with um, one of my less um, <laughs> complimentary experiences. I was working in the Imperial War Museum and I was working on a microfilm reader. Um, for 
listeners who've never worked on a microfilm reader, count yourself lucky. They're pretty <laughs> ghastly old, you know, high-tech 60s machines. And somebody told me once that nobody in the world actually makes microfilm readers anymore. So when the last microfilm reader breaks, who knows what's going to happen to all the microfiche. Either way, I've, I've been a nightmare. I have to say, I apologize if you were, if by any fringe chance, the archivist who I'm about to talk about is listening. I apologize to the bottom of my boots, but I had made a hash of this. I She'd had to load it for me. I couldn't operate this microfilm reader. I just felt totally incapable. And just your comment about finishing at, um, at a certain time in the Royal Archives. So at the Imperial War Museum, there's a very distinct lunch break. And just before lunch, you get through everyone has to leave the archive so i thought i'll be a good chap i'm going to rewind this microfilm i'm going to put it all up i don't know what i did but i pressed all the buttons in the wrong order or maybe i pressed the right buttons in the wrong order we don't know but this machine made terrible noises the microfilm flew everywhere i was so embarrassed and i had to go to this archivist and go i'm, I'm so sorry you know i've made a real hash of this and she looked at me with this despair in her eyes and you know, went over to fix it, and I made some sort of glib comment and uh, something along the lines of, "Oh, you know, sorry about this. Worst things happen at sea." All this, and I always remember to this day. She turned around and looked at me, and she said, "I've got seven more years before I retire from this job." <laughs> that was it. <laughs> oh, if you if that was you by any chance, or you know that person, I'm really sorry. Um, I, and I I just end on that and say. Um, Archivists do some absolutely fantastic work. As a historian, I could not have produced the work that I've done without the help of a number of brilliant archivists. I know we've told quirky stories about archives, but I just want to make that clear. Archivists, you do fantastic work and long may continue. Yeah, shout out to that. I mean, I, I'm naturally biased in favour of librarians and archivists being married to a librarian, but uh, <laughs> an archivist or a librarian can make or mar a research trip. 99% uh, of them are really, really helpful. Uh, but, you know, if you're working in an archive, go out of your way to be friendly, helpful, nice, because actually it makes a such a huge difference. And uh, it's an under underappreciated and underpaid profession. But actually, without good archivists, without good librarians, we as historians will be absolutely nowhere. OK, let's start to draw the threads together. So we started off by looking at Ridley Scott's views. Now, we're both fans of his film, but actually the idea that you need to have been present at an event to know anything about it just ignores how historians work. Uh, we, we mentioned Paddy Griffith several times, and somebody reminded me at the weekend of a, of a Paddy Cry, with actually one of his books or something he said in, in, in a lecture, is that um, in many ways we have an advantage over someone who fought at the Battle of Waterloo because uh, even the Duke of Wellington or Napoleon could only see a fraction of what's going on. If you're in an infantry square, you've got no idea what's going on apart from what you can see in front of you, which is not very much. We as historians have the luxury of having a much better understanding and overview of the water of Waterloo or indeed pretty well any historical event which is well documented in the last 200 years many of them are because we have access to the sources which are simply not available to to contemporaries or as someone once said to me you can't know about the second world war you weren't there my reply was well i know you were but you're only nine at the end of it so did you really understand what churchill was doing or what rommel was doing anyway um so history is not about guesswork Although 
clearly there is some involved to fill in gaps, but based, if you're any good as a historian, on uh, intelligent uh, supposition, if I can put it that way, based on what we already know to fill in gaps. But a good historian will never say this is 100% what happened because we simply can't know. There is always an element of doubt. And if, if you are making those sorts of claims, A, you're rather foolish, and B, you're setting yourself up for, 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 for a fall. But what historians actually do is pretty unglamorous. We examine sources. We mainly talk, to, talk about documents, but there are plenty of other sources we could have talked about as well. We do our best to interpret them, to understand them, and using sources, imagination, insight, and sometimes leaps of logic, we try to put together a picture which makes coherent intellectual sense. Our work is peer-reviewed, so if it's completely daft, someone will tell you pretty early on, hopefully before you publish the book, rather than when it appears in print. Um, and all we're trying to do is to try and make sense of what has happened in the past. We don't get everything right, but actually without people like us and many, many historians working out there, we would simply not have much idea at all about previous events. And that's what historians do. And whether you agree with what an individual historian writes or not, that really, I think, is a valuable um, a valuable job and our society, our culture would be much less rich without the work of historians. So having bigged us up as a profession, um, there are plenty of things you can criticize about historians, but actually I do think that historians play a pretty important role in the modern world. I echo that completely. And one thing I'd say that gives me a, uh... A lot, a lot of happiness, um, a lot of, dare I say, hope, actually, is that just what I see out in, in, in Britain, interest in history is just remains huge. And you only have to walk into any any bookstore and look at the history section to see the range of books that's available, the topics that are being covered. In some ways, dare I say it, uh, for those historians who are willing to engage with the public, we're living through a little bit of a golden age. The internet, this podcast, other you know, YouTube, anything. We've got so many new ways to engage um, with a, a public that loves history. And I like to think that the, if you're listening to this podcast, you must pretty much in, you know, be a fan of history as well. And I hope that this episode's just giving you a little bit of a feel about the difference between what we do, perhaps in academia when we're producing ac academic work, uh, to what you might see as a result. And if there's one takeaway from all this, it's that there's a huge amount of work going on under the hood, so to speak. The hours that we spend in the archives, you don't see those. You only see the words on the paper or you see us on the, the documentary or you hear us on the podcast. But this is the result of, gosh, I dread to think if we if we measured the hours we've spent in archives and reading, oh my God, the things we could have done. We could have learned languages, become professional sportsmen, uh, whatever else. But um so whenever I, you see a history book, just think about all the hours that have gone into it and uh, hopefully it'll give you a new appreciation of that. And we do it because we love it. No Absolutely. one forces us to be, to be historians. We both could have made, I suspect, reasonable livings out of doing things unrelated to history, but we do it because it's our vocation, it's our lives. If you take history out of our lives, we would be much the poorer for it. 
Couldn't have said it better. Well, with that, we'll say goodbye and see you next time for our next regular episode of Military History Plus. So goodbye from me, Professor Gary Sheffield. And goodbye from me, Dr Spencer Jones. Thank you.